At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is a Fright Fest 2014 special of It's the Gritflix.com podcast. This is a Fright Fest 2014 special of It's the Britflix.com podcast. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. Today I've got with me Jeremy Wooding. And Jeremy, you are? I'm director and producer of the Gothic Western Blood Moon. And can you give us a brief synopsis of what that is? I can. It's um, set in Colorado in 1887 mm-hmm. and tells the story of a stagecoach which stops in a deserted mining town and uh, the passengers from the stagecoach are taken prisoner by two outlaw brothers. As they try and outwit the outlaw brothers, uh, they become um, aware of a greater menace lurking outside in the shape of a mythical creature called a skinwalker right now uh, I'm, I'm i'm fully conversant with these skinwalkers and i've seen the film so i won't give give any more away than 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 the conversation allows us um uh, as a ratio of 50 50 where where that's equal what do you, would you say in this film is the scares to gross out ratio in your film well it's scares 80 percent gross out maybe 20 percent Maybe even ninety ten. Okay, uh, no, I, I tend to go with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and for those for those that are going to Fright Fest, when and where is it showing? It's showing on Bank Holiday Monday, the twenty fifth of August, and it's in Screen Eight at View Cinema Leicester Square, where the festival takes place, and it's at one o'clock. Excellent, excellent. At lunchtime, rather than in the morning. <laughs> an, important de- an important definition with the uh, round-the-clock movie marathon that Frightfest is. Yes. Um, so, if we can just talk about sort of making the film and, and stuff and get into more detail, that'd be really great. Um, now, when I, when I wrote my review for it, the, uh, after watching it, the, the, the thing that struck me was 18, the 1880s Colorado isn't the obvious place for a British horror film to locate itself. So, in 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 the scripting stage of it, what, what would you say was the was one of the big challenges in terms of resolving the storytelling? Um, well, the obvious would be obviously a, a period piece set mm. in the late 19th century, uh, with all the encumbered amount of cost that that um, asks for. Um, this is a you know a low budget independent movie, and so I had to think of a way um, to approach this which wouldn't require a budget of X amount of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And um, when I read the original script, which was about two years ago, um, it was written by Alan Whiteman, who's a big horror fan but also a big Western fan. 
And so he wanted to write something which, in his words, um, was a mixture of Stagecoach, the old John Wayne film, yeah. and, and The Thing, you know, the original The Thing. And, um, and so he just wrote it on spec just because he loves those two genres. And Alan also um, is a great comedian. He writes um, comedy stuff for um, uh, comedians who present on television or on radio. Okay. And all these things fuse together nicely in this, in this script that I read. And, and I said to him, look, I'd love to make this, but it looks really costly on the page. I can't quite get my head around not going to film in Utah or... New Mexico or whatever. And um, I then was uh, abroad in Spain um, on holiday and it suddenly hit me that we could film this on the existing locations where Sergio Leone shot all his spaghetti westerns. And it would be a, a set that's already built and we could just go in there and shoot it. Um, so I went and, uh, and had a look at the locations in Almeria Fantastic uh, area, three different little mini studios where the westerns were shot. And, um, and we did a budget, but flying people over there and putting people up was just too costly. So um, couldn't raise that amount of money. And I thought it was dead in the water until I was researching online. And I thought I knew about a wild west town in Wales. Turns out it wasn't in Wales, it was in Kent. So oh. I found this online went and saw them and said, look, I really want to shoot this movie here. We haven't got very much money. Can we, you know, talk? And out of that initial approach, gradually we, um, we got them on board. So a, a Wild West town built over 40 years in Kent, which was a 360-degree um, back lot, if you like, um, you could walk inside the buildings and they were already half set dressed. You could walk around the back of the buildings. You've got the, the woods there. You've got the street. You've got, um, uh, to a certain extent, a couple of um, carriages and carts. So um, immediately I thought, well, we can do this on a, on a tiny budget because this is the key to it, this location. Yeah, I mean, I mean was, has it been built to be a film set or is it built for sort of reenactment and things like that? It's, it's a living history society who meet every two weeks and oh, okay. they dress up in um, 19th century Western frontier clothes. They have gun practice and gun competitions. They have in the saloon, um, you know, shows with dancing girls and pianists and, and they drink and enjoy themselves <laughs> just yeah, as yeah, you yeah. would in a frontier town. Um, no, it's quite a special place and... Um, they hadn't had a feature film shot there before. It's been used for a couple of commercials and a couple of short films, uh, most recently a commercial starring Sean Bean, which is a very liquid commercial. Right. Um, and uh, I, just, I just thought it would give us a great atmosphere, different to the original script, which was set in the desert, yeah. but much more grungy and, and gothic, and, and that inspired me. No, certainly, certainly that it does, and... Uh... And I did, as much as um, I could have presumed it wasn't in America, just because of the cast and you're mentioning about budget and flying people and things, it, it did feel authentic. It was, uh, I think you've done a great job there in that sense. Well, thank you. And um, we, we screened it in the buyer's market at the Cannes Film Festival um, uh, in May. And 
one of the most worrying aspects was showing it to the Canadians and the Americans, because if we didn't pass muster with them, then they'd just say, well, you know, we don't buy into this. Mm. It's just a Brit movie. Um, but they bought into the accents and they just said, where did you shoot it in the States? Um, um, and then they, their next question was, how do you fly over all those Americans to be in your movie? And no, they said, didn't. <laughs> well, we, yeah, really. <laughs> so um, it was like, yes, um, we've got past that hurdle, you know. Um, and, and I have to say, the actors uh, worked really hard on their accents. They, they pretty much all paid for their own um, voice coaches. And, um, I mean, one a- actress who, who's only in w- uh, one scene, actually, the uh, general store owner, she actually found uh, a woman from Colorado and got her to, um, uh, you know, coach her in, in the Colorado accent. Wow, that's... that's Dedication. Beyond the yeah, beyond the call of duty there. I mean, it was the, I was impressed with... Because um, sh- Sean, obviously, being a Yorkshireman, you, you can't hear his accent at all. Yes, and uh, when Sean saw the movie for the first time a couple of weeks ago, he said, um, do you know what I really like about this movie? The fact you can't see it's me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and this is true because um, a, a producer who came along to that screening, uh, I was talking to her after the screening, and she said, I've worked with Sean Dooley, and I didn't realise until 20 minutes into the movie it was Sean Dooley. Oh, Wow. And uh, so it's it's great when an actor can disappear into a role and, as they love doing, become somebody else. Now, if if getting the set was the kind of big bit of momentum to to take the script forward to make a film, then when when once you were in the process of sort of pre-producing the film, what were what were the things you're anticipating were going to be the challenges for the actual shoot itself? Um. Well, the, the, the shoot's basically in the middle of a field in Kent mm. and down a couple of country lanes, although it's only 20 minutes outside of London. Um, That's quite out, insane, Jeremy, really. <laughs> it is. On the, <laughs> so it's on, on the station, uh, out, uh, Victoria Station, 20 minutes out, and uh, we weren't going to ferry people in taxis or whatever from London. It was get on the 5.30 train to... Uh, to Kent in the morning, and then you get ferried 10 minutes around the corner to the location. Mm. However, um, being stuck out in the middle of nowhere, and the weather in January, February was turning for the worst. I don't if you remember the storms and the floods. Of course, yeah. Um, we suddenly realised that the location we'd wrecked in October the previous year had now become a quagmire, and with all the attendant problems of getting vehicles and cast and crew over those fields to the to the location to this wild west town um, meant we were going to have to lay down artificial you know roading onto the field and create a base which wouldn't sink into the mud and all of a sudden i just saw pound signs flashing up and thought we have not budgeted for this this is you know something completely different so that that was that was the main problem that i could see hurtling towards us as well as you know being the producer i'm prepping as a director but also i'm trying to sort out contracts and cast availability and we hadn't actually got um any money in the bank account until a week into the shoot so we were running on empty cash flowing you know with friends and family and um myself and my co-producer and um and that was you know uh, flying by the seat of our pants really 
And, and in terms of the, um, the, 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 the monster of the movie, mm. how, how did you approach that in terms of... Um, I'm guessing when you're talking, when you're going through it with the, with the writer or as you're planning the shoot... Are you, are you, have you decided at the point at which we're allowed to see the thing, or, are you, or is that decided by...? Well, well other than um, talking to Alan about how he envisaged, envisaged the creature being, mm. um, and he didn't really have any firm idea about it, other than other creatures that he liked in other films, like American Werewolf in London or um, Ginger Snaps or, you know, the, the, the ones that have, have been successful and that people like. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Dan Martin and Lee Cranston, who came on board to create the creature, we went through a process of, of, you know, designing the creature and talking about what we liked and what we didn't. The history of um, werewolf movies, how much of a werewolf is it? How much of a beast is it? How much of a man is it? And um, we sort of uh, came across common denominator of what we both liked, and which was a wolf-like creature, which was also part evil beast, and it was big. Um, and it was big, and it was fast, and it was powerful. Um, of course, we hadn't reckoned with uh, the place turning into a quagmire where we were filming, and so when you've built an eight-foot, six-inch beast, and probably the, 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 the tallest physical werewolf creature in movie history, it seems. <laughs> so eight foot six inches um, on pneumatic stilts, which were um, borrowed from Peter Jackson's Weta uh, laboratory in New Zealand, right. free of charge. Wow. So you've got a seven foot one inch actor, Ian White, who's playing the skinwalker. Yeah. In this uh, creature suit, standing eight foot six inches tall, and he can't move because he will fall over in the mud. Oh. So um, all the ideas that I had about him being fast and powerful and being very elliptical and moving through the, the, the screen and, you know, moving across the screen and us not really being able to see him very much um, sort of went out the window. And uh, so I had to rethink how I was going to use the creature. Um, and inevitably, when you start talking to people who have either made creature features or who know about this stuff, it comes down to, oh, yeah, yeah, less is more, of course, you know. Yeah, yeah. Don't show him too much. Um, they had the same problem in Jaws and in Alien, and, you know, Steven Spielberg turned up on set and he said, I don't want to show that rubber shark, get it out of here. You know, so, so and same with Alien as well, which is, you know, don't reveal it until the very end. Mm. But the alien creature moves fast, and so you can get away with it, you know, zipping round corners and things. Yeah. So um, so I just thought, well, um, you know, I'm going to shoot it, make it as scary as possible, but also make it a, a character. And also in a true kind of B-movie tradition, um, you know, sometimes if the audience uh, find the creature quite funny, then fine, because when you do expose your creature to the audience and it snarls or whatever... Whatever your budget, people were going to laugh because you're dealing with a guy in a suit. Hmm. Um, and, you know, just as like with Godzilla, as soon as the fan base saw Godzilla, everyone went, Godzilla doesn't look like that, he's too fat. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in the end, you just go, 
do you know what? This is our creature. This is, um, you know, the time and the place that we've made it. And hopefully the story is strong enough and you're in this movie already um, to suspend disbelief and just run with our creature. Indeed, indeed. Mm. So in that sense, then, when you got to get the camera rolling... What, what do you think? I mean, I wrote down here biggest headache, but that seems a bit on the negative side, so I'll go with the positive side of it. What, would, what, what proved to be your, your, what you feel your, your, was your biggest directorial achievement then? And, and, and how did that happen? Uh, on, well, biggest directorial achievement on this film was making the film. <laughs> <laughs> As in, uh, you know, four weeks, six-day weeks, and um, an ambitious movie. I mean, yeah. a period piece something that had horses, guns, stunts, prosthetics, creature, um, but most of, most of all the mud and the weather. And getting through the, um, getting through the, the set pieces, but also the drama, because mm. I'd always seen it as very much an ensemble piece where the drama and interaction between all the characters was just as important as the scares. And... And if I could get that right, as well as the, the tense and hopefully scary atmosphere, then it would make it something different and would be true to what Alan set out to do, which was Stagecoach Meets the Thing. Um, and I think we did, um, you know, to a lesser or greater extent, achieve that. And no, there's, there's some cracking um, interactions and some lovely lovely dialogue that you've used. In, in Certainly when you've got that bit where the kind of the point where the the main point of the drama where they're holed up by the, by, the, by the criminals, what goes on in there? There's some great little exchanges. Yes, and there's this, you know, the question about, um, particularly with horror films, with, you know, isolation movies, I probably call them, where, you know, you're in a, in a shack in the country or in a cottage or, or a, a closed-off, surrounded environment, mm. is you can do one set piece after another, but how, how many set pieces can you do till the audience tire of that? And then all of a sudden it's like, well, I haven't understood these characters, I haven't lived with them, I don't care about them, so therefore I'm not in their position in danger. And so I think to a certain extent, and I worry a little bit that a lot of horror films these days just haven't got the patience to say to the audience, you have to invest in this story and in these characters, otherwise it won't pay off later. And I, I worry a little bit that filmmakers are, um, just think to make a good horror movie, you just have to splatter the screen with, with gore. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm firmly in your camp then. On the, uh, what, I want to invest something in characters. It's still a film at the end of the day, even if it's a horror film. Yeah. You know, and that's where, that's where we get the payoff in terms of any kind of ending, is that we've actually been bothered. Or we've actually, and, and for all your little... I mean, I won't give anything away, but there's lots of... There's lots of obvious things that start off with that then as the story evolves turn out to be little red herrings little side roads and, and your payoffs begin to grow our interest in the characters you know the way people talk what they reveal about themselves and and also it should be entertaining i mean the the you know the dialogue i think should be entertaining the the characters the their their backstory um their interactions so that uh, i mean one of my one of my Problems with the original script was about not making it feel like a, for want of a better description, a stage production. And mm. I think there's always a problem when you've got people, you know, just in rooms talking at each other, was to open it out and make it cinematic. And I think part of that is also where you choose to shoot. 
and rather than shooting in a studio you're shooting on a real location and you can see the ceilings you can see the floor you can walk out a door and um, be outside you have a real um, environment which opens it out for you so therefore you know people are talking but they can go into the next room and you can follow them mm. Um, rather than just having a composite set in a studio where you're doing an interior and then you're outside. But when you're in, in an interior and you don't have much money, you just end up shooting people in corners and against walls. <laughs> um, and I think that's, that's the big difference between making something cinematic or making it look like it's in a television studio. No, without a doubt. And I think, I think you, definitely, you definitely made as much use as you could of the interior. You know the very. I mean, I see some of it's, you, you take us into sort of like cooking rooms, and you've got the open bar, you've got back rooms and stuff, and obviously you also have the outside to play with when, in terms of your pacing and stuff. Yeah. Um, so the Fright Fest audience is is arguably more famous than the filmmakers in some senses. Every year ago, I, I hear from the filmmakers at the Q and A that they were excited to see the Fright Fest audience reaction to their film. So. Is there, any, is there anything that you're particularly excited about in terms of details in the film that you'll be fascinated to, without, you know, with, I, I guess it's hard to sort of explain it without giving too much away, but is there a way of pointing out anything that you're excited to see the audience well, reaction at Fright Fest? A, a couple of things. Um, obviously, you make a movie um, and you look at it a lot of times in the edit suite or um, show it amongst your collaborators, but sitting amongst an audience, different kinds of audiences teach you really what your movie is and, and you know, what its strengths and weaknesses are. Um, we've probably showed this to what I would say is a mixed industry and public audience twice. Yeah. And um, I'm interested with the Fright Fest audience, which is, which is obviously a genre fan base audience mostly. Of course. I'm interested to see how... Um, how they react to the humour in the script, first of all, because I find it quite funny and it has a, quite a dark arch sense of humour. It doesn't take itself too seriously. Um, and also there are, there are one or two gory moments which we put a little bit of money into to um, suddenly throw them at the audience and, and just say, well, just when you were getting comfortable, here's one to look at. Um, so there's a couple of gory moments, and you probably know what I'm talking about. Indeed. And um, and then also um, how the presence of the creature is um, is taken up to the point where it first appears. And uh, again, without giving much away, uh, just seeing how the audience accept the, the the creature's appearance, the very first one. No, no, I think, and that's you know, for any creature feature, that is the important moment, isn't it? For uh, for uh, how everybody goes forward from that point, isn't it? Yeah, and and like I said, with with any creature feature, um, as audience, you know, I uh, often I'll I'll just you know I'll just look at a, at a creature or a monster and go, no, they didn't have the money, did they? Or um, well, I'm not very scared of that, or or whatever, because. Uh, that's the hardest thing with the creature feature, and uh, particularly with physical creatures rather than CGI computer graphics features. Mm. Um, you uh, you are thrown at the mercy of the audience a lot, but just as old style, old school um, creature makeup and techniques still work today, 
um, even if they are, you know, old fashioned. I think that, um, you know, if you've got a good story, it should get you past that. Oh, totally, totally. Yes, yeah. So, um, I mean, with with the whole CGI versus physical uh, creature effects, um, again, at the, at the very beginning, we got a quote um, from a post-production house to create a, you know, a CGI creature. We certainly wouldn't have the amount of money that you have in, say, Planet of the Apes or Lord of the Rings um, to create something that amazing. Yeah. Um, and all the time I could think back to was the werewolves in Twilight and the werewolves um, in Van Helsing. And mm. my own reaction when I first saw those, those werewolves, all I could see was the fuzzy edges of the fur and thinking oh, they didn't quite composite that in very well. And, um, and that is the thing, you know, if you do CGI with, with creatures with fur, it's really difficult. <laughs> Yeah, 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 because there's these, it, like, reptilian stuff have got hard lines, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, and uh, and so immediately I thought, we're going to get ourselves into deep water if we go um, down the uh, down the CGI fur route. No, and I think, I think you know, give, give, from my perception of the of the Frankfest audience, it's, uh, I think, I think you'll be applauded for the, for the more kind of old school, more authentic look for the, for the creatures, to be honest with you. Yeah, but I hope so. And, and, you know, like I say, there's no apologies. It is what it is, and hopefully they'll go with it. Exactly. So, moving on, and being Britflix, we always like to find out a new horror film to watch. So, are you able to recommend us a British horror film that you feel is grossly underrated and deserves that bit more kudos? My choice would be Deathline. Ah, good choice. 1972, yes. uh, directed by Gary Sherman, starring Donald Pleasance. In one of his finest moments, I think. Yes, and um, I think what I like about it is it's, it's violent, funny, off the wall, and, and at times just totally random. <laughs> I totally agree. Um, like Christopher Lee appears for one scene yeah. and, and says, you know, don't pursue this case to Donald Pleasant. <laughs> and it disappears. We don't see him again. And yet somehow it works because the whole film is a bit like that. Um, and, and I think it's, you know, it's a cult classic. It's, it's a truly original Brit horror movie. And I've only, I've only got it on VHS. <laughs> like, I don't even know if it's on DVD still. Is it's, it on DVD? Do you know that? I think it is. You know, I think you can get. I think you can get it on DVD now. It's I mean, my my favourite bit is the um or, or the or the the, the favourite favourite thing in it is the constant stirring the tea with a dart. <laughs> you know, picking up one of your random points. It's such a great little characterisation of the of the, the character he's playing. Well, the details are, are, are brilliant, and and like I said, you know, it's 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 a movie which is entertaining as well as quite gruesome and bleak as well in, um, in its overall atmosphere and, and tragic in the end. So it does so many things and kind of shouldn't work, but it does. And it leaves you with a lot of impressions, maybe sort of impressionistic kind of um, images. And I think it probably influenced American Werewolf in London, probably influenced Creep. Um, without a doubt, without a doubt. It certainly influenced me, particularly in writing, in the sense that you can throwing things that you really like that you find entertaining and then you know if you if if they're original enough and interesting enough um they should stand up well i think i think it's the, it's the point that, that they made 
Donald Pleasant's such a cantankerous person, yet he's the person that's trying to sort it all out. Well, indeed, he's, he's not heroic. He's not a heroic hero, is he, by any stretch? No, he's he's nice and nasty, you know. Mm. And uh, um, I, I just love the uh, the mind the doors line. If you remember that, okay, where well. uh, it's the line which the, the cannibal <laughs> guy, um, just known as the man, yeah. actually sort of parrots at the end of the movie, and in his weird kind of not quite English way. And uh, that just cracks me up every time I see the movie. <laughs> well, no, that's a solid recommendation, and, and it was one that featured in the in the in the twenty Brit films, British horror films to recommend. So, I guess our thumbs up. Um, do, do you have a, an official release date for for it, or is or is the festival marking that? Um, well, it's it's the first public screening, proper public screening of the film. So, in Excellent. that sense, it's a world premiere. Um, and uh, like I say, I'm looking forward to, to sitting amongst the audience and watching it with real people. Um, and then uh, hopefully it'll be out in a limited cinema release in the autumn um, right. within a month to six weeks after Fright Fest and then available online and DVD-wise pretty soon after that. Excellent, excellent. I, I think it's one of the, one of the things which um, is kind of worrying in the independent British film scene that if, if you want a wider cinema release, you have to wait for the three to four month holdback to go into more cinemas than just a couple of dozen. Um, but the problems of putting it out and the cost of putting out a film into a lot of cinemas often means on a small British movie that you're carrying quite a lot of debt, unless it does really well, surprisingly, in the, mm. on the circuit carrying a lot of debt, which you then carry into your DVD and online release. And often that just doesn't add up for um, reaching an audience these days. Yeah, and I guess the only the, 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 the real gamble is to, to hopefully get the film some broader reviews, which means you get a broader awareness of the film in and of itself is what theatrical gives you over not theatrical. But that's seemingly, like you say, it's a, it's, it's a gamble and a cost with that gamble, isn't it? Yeah, so so I'm I'm hopeful that we can sell internationally, and um, and and particularly we're 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 looking at uh, um, the states and and Canada um, who seem to like the movie, um, and and so you know we 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 don't realise that the UK is such a small market in in international um, in an international industry. Mm. And so, you know, I've, I've, I've had movies in, in the cinema already. It's not something which would be, you know, my dream to, to have uh, one of my feature <laughs> films in, in the cinema. I, you know, my producer's hat on is um, forget the dream and let's see some money back on this movie. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the news story this week while, while recording it, you know, uh, was it Harvey Weinstein's company did, a, did the kind of first non-cinematic release where it was, where it proved to be a huge... Profit, you know, not on a reason, on a reason, you know, not on an exactly small film, but it wasn't obviously wasn't a Planet of the Apes type size film. But they see that the news stories I've been reading this week seem to be saying this is this is evidence of the real game changer in how we watch films, therefore how we sell films to people. Well, indeed, and it's the last bit of of the film industry that's unreconstructed. And you know, we, we're now able to make things cheaply. We're able to. Um, to get it to that point of, of, of quality and, and, and interest where we go, yes, we think it's a good film, um, now we've got to get it out to a wider audience. And 
that is when independent filmmakers lose the um, control of their movie, when they have to hand it over to um, sales and distribution. Well, look, as a final reminder, when, when, when and where can people see the film at, uh, at Fright Fest? Um, once again, it's um, the View Cinema, Leicester Square, where the Fright Fest Film Festival is taking place, 1pm, uh, screen 8 on the 25th of August, and, yeah, hopefully see you there. Indeed. Well, thank you very much for uh, taking time out to speak to us. You're welcome. This is a Fright Fest 2014 special of It's the Gripflix.com podcast. This is a Fright Fest 2014 special of It's the Gripflix.com podcast. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.